right, hey folks, and welcome back to the 747 Conversations podcast. It's your host, Chris Shembra. Today we're talking gratitude, empathy, and the great things that our guests are doing for this world. Today with me is Joel Holland, the CEO of Harvest Hosts, a membership network that connects RVers with unique overnight experiences at wineries, farms, breweries, and museums all across the country. Uh, Previously, he was founder and chairman of Storyblocks, a one-stop shop for high-quality stock media. It is a six-time Inc. 5000 honoree based out of Washington, D.C., and he removed himself to buy a company with uh, with his wife, Mary Ashley, and now traveling the world, giving people the great experiences and of seeing the great outdoors. So Joel, it's a, as an outdoor adventureman myself, it's a true honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor to be here. You've, um, you've accomplished <laughs> so much yourself. I, I think it's cool how everyone has things they're good at and I'm good at some things, but I don't think I'll ever win any Tony's Emmys or Grammys. So that's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of cool to be talking to someone who has. Well, it's, you know, it, being, being, uh, knowing what you're good at, um, I think is, uh, one of the, the key things in life and you know, you're good at helping others become happier, more connected to mother nature. And, and that's a beautiful thing, you know, to understand about yourself, but to start us off with, you know, today, the simple question I have that we start every podcast with is, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, or just have never thought to give any credit or thanks to, whether it's someone you've never met before or someone you've known your entire life, whether it be positive or negative, their impact on you, who would that be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and not one, not one I get a lot. So I, I think that, the short answer before the real, you know, before the real answer you want uh, is my parents. And I'm going to put them together as one unit. Um, I'm sure a lot of people say this, but I don't, I don't give them enough credit. And, and honestly, like, obviously without them, none of this would have been possible, but I don't, I don't mean just by being born uh, just the way that they supported me when I was growing up, you know, we were middle-class family, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we certainly weren't in a bad situation. And I, and the way they brought me up, they did not give me everything I wanted. They made me work for it and um, kind of instilled this sense of drive that I have today. And so when I then did come up with business ideas as a kid, they were super supportive, even when my ideas were really dumb. And I think that's uh, that's a parenting thing that, I'm, you know, I'm just very fortunate they were like that. And I want to be like that one day, just, you know, support your kids no matter how dumb their ideas are, because this is support that counts. So that's the, you know, want to put that in there as far as one person that I don't give enough credit to man that's a tough question you know there so when I was in ninth grade I started working for a nonprofit in the DC area and it was called kids online we basically taught inner city kids how to use technology uh and and train them on video and, and, you know, networking and these, you know, sorts of interesting technology topics. The guy that ran the organization was named Phil Kruver. And he was 
just like the consummate businessman. He was always motivated and fired up, had great ideas, wanted to change the world. And it was pretty infectious. And so as I worked there for a number of years, he really inspired me to get excited about technology and then specifically video technology. And I, and you know, without that experience and without his kind of inspiration and support, I never would have started Storyblocks, which became, you know, really my first real, that was my first real company. It's what gave me the liquidity to buy Harvest Hosts. You know, it's the reason I'm sitting in an RV today, <laughs> driving across the country. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess that one person would be Phil Kruver and I should probably reach out and let him know. <laughs> I mean, how did you meet this guy in the first place? I was introduced um, by my school counselor. So my, um, actually my eighth grade school counselor introduced me to uh, the organization. And he said, hey, I see you have a, um, an interest in technology. You should reach out to this organization and like give back a bit. And by the way, learn a lot of new skills. And so my counselor made the introduction. I then went in and um, did basically an interview to meet the team. And that's when I met, uh, met Phil. And we yeah, just hit it off. Um, I think he, uh, he kind of saw that I had a lot of energy and passion. And so did he. Um, and we worked really well together. Uh, to, to kind of build that organization along with, you know, the rest of the, the team there. I mean, everyone at Kids Online is just wonderful. And so when you talk about, you know, Phil helping you fall in love with technology, did you fall in love with technology because Phil showed you how technology could impact inner city kids? Or was there a different way that he used to help you fall in love with technology? Mm, that's a good question. So I was always fascinated with technology. And, and the reason I know that is that like my most, my most salient memories from childhood, <laughs> like I can tell you the first computer I purchased the day I bought it, the year, uh, and 1997 is like what I would look back at as the most like when, when I daydream or I fly back to like warm, fuzzy emotions, a lot of them are from 1997 when I first got on the internet and had that first computer. And I, you know, uh, so, so, you know, having the love of technology and that was that, by the way, that was like almost eighth grade. Then I went to moved, went to eighth grade, met Phil. I think that Phil that helped me channel that me because I, I loved computers and technology I loved the basically the infinite you know accessibility that they gave people and 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 what you know one ex specific example is that even though I was in eighth grade I had grandiose ambitions right I didn't see myself as a eighth grader or a little kid I just saw myself as a person that wanted to like do big things and the internet was so radical because it didn't matter how old I was like my ideas mattered and how hard I worked on them mattered. My age didn't make a difference. And, and, you know, one of the first things I started doing was selling on eBay. And by the time I was, you know, I think by the time I had graduated from eighth grade, I was a power seller on eBay. And that, that could not have been possible before the internet, right? Um, so then I met Phil and Phil opened me up to all these like even 
bigger technology concepts like broadcast video. We had the first um, Stream Genie, which was the first online video brought like streaming engine. And so we were doing these webcasts uh, of events way before YouTube ever existed or using like it was even a glint you know, in the eye of the creators. And that was pretty radical too. Cause then I'm like, wow, video, it, there's going to be a day when everyone has the ability to create their own content and everyone's going to have this voice again, regardless of age or location uh, or, you know, societal you know, status, everyone's going to have a voice. Um, and that's what got me into building story blocks was just really wanted to make sure everyone could create really cool videos. So, so sorry, I know that was a very long winded answer, but uh, Phil opened me up to more grandiose technology concepts. Which is what every mentor should do is, you know, is to broaden the horizons, you know, that mentee, you, you know, you, you said an, an interesting thing that ideas mattered, not age. Right when you were eight, and the internet was at your fingertips. It was the ideas that you had that attracted the people? How did you know when you're talking about working for Phil in, in you know the late '90s when you're still very young? Um, you know how did he champion your ideas? Uh, other than you know outside of looking at the fact that this is your first job coming out of you know being a kid. Yeah. How is, he, how is he good at that? Oh, for sure. And I, I can give you very good concrete examples here. So I started working for kids online, got into video, was excited about this whole concept of like, you know, creating video content for the masses. And I had this idea I wanted to create like a, a, an online show called Streaming Futures. And my idea was pretty simple. I was, you know, I want to interview really interesting people that are at the tops of their careers, celebrities, politicians, journalists, uh, and get their advice for young people who are in high school uh, trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And I feel like this is like, there's like this make or break situation everyone has when they have an idea. Like we all have ideas and we're like, on one hand, we think it's a great idea and we want to do it. On the other hand, we think it's probably stupid and we shouldn't do it. And the difference between going one direction or the other in that fork, a lot of times is your mentor or somebody who you care about their opinion. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier, my parents were super supportive. Well, I had all these ideas when I was a kid. And if my parents had told me they were dumb, I wouldn't have done them because it would have taken me down the fork of, yeah, they're right. That was dumb. I thought it might be dumb, but now I know it's dumb. And I think Phil was the same way. I went to him and I said, hey man, I want to go interview Arnold Schwarzenegger for this show. How cool would that be? And I'm thinking, well, would that be cool or is, am I being stupid? Now, if Phil had said, look, that's cute. Why don't you start with your like high school principal? Then I would have been like, yeah, he's right. That was dumb. But instead, Phil said, I love this idea. Let's make this the greatest internet show ever. You should definitely go get Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll help you. And that really set into motion uh, this confidence that my idea wasn't dumb, that it was good. And we ended up interviewing 150 people, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Steve Forbes, David Nealon in a JetBlue, um, Elon Musk. I mean, it, it, like the people I actually sat down with and interviewed was phenomenal. And I had no right to do it. 
And the only reason it happened was that I had confidence in myself. And the only reason I had confidence in myself was that Phil said it was a good idea. It was just that easy? Just that easy, man. I like, it really is. I feel like the power that people have when someone asks their opinion on something is um, pretty great. And that's why, you know, there's all these studies that show surrounding yourself with optimists is much, much healthier than pessimists, not just on your well-being, but you'll be more successful. Well, it's because Phil was an optimist. And so when I would come to him with ideas, he was, his, his default mode was support. Well, I mean, my parents are the same way. They're optimists. So their default mode is support. But if you're around a pessimist, the default mode is to actually think it through and would, you know, and correctly. And by the way, optimists are, sorry, pessimists are often correct, but it's just not the fuel that you need. And so the pessimist, if I had asked the pessimist, should I create an internet show and go interview Arnold Schwarzenegger? The pessimist would have said, dude, nobody watches internet shows. And why would Arnold Schwarzenegger waste time with you? And perfectly valid. But luckily I didn't ask a pessimist. Pessimist. I asked an optimist. What happened with that show? It ended up being a ton of fun to create. Um, we, we, we distributed it to a lot of schools. Uh, PBS ended up picking it up. And so it had, you know, kind of a, a limited run on PBS. Um, and I think more than that, it, I mean, for me personally, it was just like, it was a crazy learning experience because I would sit down with someone like Elon Musk before he had launched his first rocket and basically got to listen to him explain to me why in the world someone who already made tons of money would risk it all to do something new. And that was like, mm. that was crazy to me. And it was really neat to hear, to see his passion and, and hear him explain why he wanted to enter the space race. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, the show had pretty decent distribution. It was nothing, obviously none of us ever heard of it. So it wasn't that well distributed, but, um, but it was a really cool learning experience. So, so moving past Phil for a second and, and on to, you know, your connection with Elon Musk, you asked Elon Musk, why would someone who, for our listeners who don't know, who co-founded PayPal and, made a lot of money and made a lot of friends. Why would he risk that all to go launch rockets into space? My question to you is years down the line, I know you, you stopped working for Phil and then you did a couple things and, and then you, you know, you started uh, your next successful company. And then all of a sudden you say, God, you know what? I'm, I'm going to step away from a six time Inc 500 company and I'm going to risk it all to buy a company in, in 2018 and, and take that over with your wife. You know, what did Phil have to say in, you know, during that transition, if you asked his, you know, optimistic opinion, you know, in the time, what was it like to make that decision? Yeah. Um, man, well, so first of all, I have to, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, um, it's certainly not fair to compare my jump back into buying this company uh, to, to Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that they're even like connected by a string. Um, but I think like what was inter interesting with Elon was that he, his answer essentially was, 
I have to, I, I like I'm obligated to. And I think he really does see like, he's, he feels a sense of obligation that when you reach a certain pinnacle of success, you are obligated to society or the world or the universe to uh, essentially double down and take that success and build on it to make something even better for the world. And so I think like, yeah, essentially his answer for why he wants to get to Mars, you know, he, he wants to save the human race. He sees that as a, as a, uh, as a personal obligation, not something he's doing for fun, not something he's doing to make money. That is so admirable. I think people like that are, they're so far and few between and I'm not like him uh, because I could never do that. I, I could never take everything that I built and put it all down and potentially risk losing it all. And if you know his full story, I'm sure you do, but if listeners don't like he was like one rocket launch, one failed rocket launch away from being completely insolvent. And that was, that was yeah. Christmas Eve, right? Yeah, it was, it was wild. I mean, he literally was sitting there pretty he calmly watching what would have been the end of him. And he still did it. And, 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 and like, it was because he was just like, that was his identity was he was like, he was already on to the next thing. So, man, so much respect for that. I think he's like Einstein, like people like this only come around once in a hundred years. I think he's one of those guys. Um, for me, the decision to, re, to, to, to basically reinvest, buy a company and start again, because you're right, I have to. Right? After, after you know, stepping down uh, as CEO of Storyblocks, I sold part of the company to a private equity firm. Like I, I was fortunate to have the money that I needed to live the life that I wanted. And I'm, my wife and I moved to Vail, Colorado. I skied you know, 70 days the first year, camped, hiked, biked all the other days. I was doing all the things that I've always wanted to do. Um, but I just realized that for me personally, it was kind of like all the fun without any of the work was a little bit empty. And I need, I need the contrast of having a purpose um, in order to then enjoy the carefree times. And like the more I didn't have a purpose as, as time went on, like as I entered year two of being like semi-retired, not even semi-fully retired, um, it just became kind of a, a listless experience and skiing wasn't as much fun and camping wasn't as much fun because it didn't feel like I, I deserved it. It's like eating a bunch of junk food without working out. You feel gross. But if you go run a marathon and then eat junk food, you're like, hell yeah, I deserve this. So that was for me, the reason I jumped back into it was I wanted to do something productive again for society um, and then enjoy my free time. <laughs> And so when you, you know, say, I, I want to jump back into work, I want to do something productive for society, you know, you, you stumble upon, you know, an opportunity which helps give people meaningful experiences, happiness, freedom, at a very low cost. You literally help people live happier lives to get them off the couch and onto the open road. How did you find this opportunity? How many different opportunities did you need to source through to figure out that this is what you and Mary Ashley were going to do for the next chapter? 
Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. And 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 the and the funny thing is the answer is at first. So I had one year of playing without any guilty conscience. I just I loved it. Year two, I started stressing out, realizing, man, I need a purpose. The way I went about finding my next chapter, uh, in hindsight, was incorrect. I, you know, I was just trying to like, I was going about it academically and methodically, like writing lists of like, what are the growing industries and where's the money and what am I good at? Um, and for like a year, I tried that approach and it didn't work. It got me no closer to finding it. And I was getting very frustrated. And then I kind of just had uh, one of these aha, very obvious moments where I was like, well, what do I really enjoy doing? Like, wh- what's, the, what's an activity that brings me a ton of joy that I think I could take to more people and, and also build a career around it? Which is how I had started Storyblocks. So I just kind of went back to my roots of like, build a company around something you love. Um, and then make money as a byproduct and everyone wins. And so, so as I sat and like did that exercise, I was like, well, I love RVing. I think RVing is like the coolest thing because it's very accessible. Um, pretty much everyone can do it. Um, our country is amazing and very few people really see it, truly see it. And travel, at least like, like as I'm talking to you right now, sitting here in Whittington Woods in Illinois, I am, I am at such peace that I've never, I don't have this feeling unless I'm out on the road like this, like sitting in a cubicle doesn't accomplish it. So um, when I started thinking that way, I'm like, well, okay. So I love RVing. What is it about RVing? Well, it's like going to new places. And as I you know, kind of went through this thought process, realized, man, we drive by all these gorgeous farms and vineyards and wineries. Why are there not RVers staying at these businesses, you know, enjoying the businesses, supporting the businesses, um, and then staying overnight. That's how I found this company, Harvest Hosts, which was doing exactly that. And it was a husband and wife team who had spent years building this network of hundreds of really cool locations. Um, but they weren't online marketers and they weren't technologists. And so they hadn't really, it was very small. It was a very niche thing. And so I, I, I came across it and said, man, that's what I want to take to more people. This experience is exactly right. And then I had that build versus buy decision. You know, do I try to build this from scratch or do I buy it and, you know, take all the expertise that they've already put into this and just expand it. So I reached out to them and to the founders, Kim and Don, and said, hey, I love what you've built. Do you have any interest in selling this? Um, I am an RVer. I'm not just a capitalist. I'm not going to take this and sell it out. I'm going to meaningfully expand it. And at first their answer was, no, we have no interest in selling. But as we got to know each other over the course of a few months, um, that changed. And, and we ended up finding a price that worked for them. And they did a lot of diligence on me to make sure I wasn't going to take their baby and destroy it. Um, you know, and here we are over, you know, like a year and a half later. And I'd like to think that that's been the case. Like we've, we've, we now have over 1,100 locations for RVers to stay for free if you're a member of our organization. They're really cool locations. Um, last night I was at a vineyard uh, in our network. The night before that I was at um, an underground salt museum. You know, it's, it's, it's like really unique experiences. So that's a long-winded way of saying the way I found the business was by just kind of stepping back and thinking about what I enjoyed doing 
and um, you know, what could I, what could I build upon to help other people enjoy the same thing, which, which you mentioned, right? Like my, my goal, my stated purpose, as you said, is to help people get off the couch and onto the open road. And I feel like that's what we're doing now, which is awesome. That concept of, you know, finding something that you're good at and then that makes you happy or brings you joy and then building a business around that. Is that something everybody can do? Like for the people listening today, what if, what if we don't have the access to capital, the access to time, you know, that you've been privileged with by, by working hard and building a successful company? You know, what do people do if, if they don't have that access? Yeah, I don't want to sound contrite. So I'm going to try to like say this properly. Um, I had no, I had no funding when I was starting out. I had no money. Um, I sold golf balls to make my first money to buy inventory to then sell on eBay to then buy my video camera to start story locks. So anyone can start from the bottom and work their way up. But what's kind of cool today in 2018 is that you don't need a lot of capital to start really what you need today is just like an idea, passion and, and work ethic. Um, you need time, but I think that everyone has more time than they think, right? Like stop watching television and all of a sudden you got another 10 hours a week. I mean, that's an incredible amount of time. Um, so I think the second thing I'd say is that everyone, I think everyone has something that they're really good at or that they really enjoy doing, right? Like, um, you are an incredible marketer and you understand Broadway and theater. And what's interesting is if you, so like, let's say that you are in the top 20th percentile as a marketer, right? Like that's what you do. You're really good. So you're in the top 20th you know, percentile. And as a theater, you know, professional, let's say you're in the top also 20, right? Well, if you multiply those together, you're like in the top, you know, couple of percentage points of the people who understand marketing and theater. And so you could go in and create a theater marketing company that uh, kills it because you've taken two things that you're only top 20th percentile in. So like, you know, you're better than 80% of people, but you're not the best. But when you put them together and multiply those by each other, you're now like in the top 5%. And that's pretty cool. And I think a lot of, I think everyone can do that. Like everyone is good at something and enjoys something. We'll try putting those two things together. Um, at a minimum, you can create a Udemy course. Okay. One of the things I've been doing lately is watching, <laughs> I've been watching Udemy courses and I pay $10 to, to buy a course on a topic that I don't understand and I just want to learn more about. And it's passionate people who know one thing really, really well. Like I just watched a course on YouTube video advertising. And it was like nine hours of a guy who just really understands how to make pre-roll videos for YouTube that are extremely effective. And he just simply took the time to learn that topic inside and out. And I imagine looking at his stats on Udemy, he's making quite a bit of money selling that course. So yeah, so, so, I, so I think that the, the, the answer is anyone, if they're really passionate about something and enjoy something, they can make a business out of it. It might not be like a retirement business. It might not be the end of the world, but, um, but it's something and anyone can do that. And 
And, and so, and so you don't necessarily advocate that everybody's got to turn their passion project into their full-time job. No, I don't think so because I, because I don't, I don't advocate that everyone should be an entrepreneur. I think that, um, different personality types are good, you know, accept different types of risk. And so entrepreneurs tend to be the types of people who don't mind risking a lot, whether it's their time or their capital or reputation. Um, they probably have different approaches to stress. Like I'm just not a very stressed out person. So I can put a lot of money on the line or do something and it doesn't actually keep me up at night. Like I sleep like a baby and it doesn't hurt me. I'm never getting an ulcer. Um, I'm fortunate like that. Whereas I have plenty of friends who are really, really wound up. And if like they lost $10,000 one day on a campaign that didn't go right, that would eat them alive and they wouldn't be able to sleep. And so they're, they shouldn't, I don't think, put themselves in that situation of being an entrepreneur because I don't think it'd be a really happy lifestyle for them. So I think, um, I think everyone should have passions. Everyone should have things that they really enjoy doing. If you are the type of person you can turn that into a career, that's awesome. And then, yeah, like 100% do that. Um, but if you're perfectly happy being, you know, for working for a company and you enjoy the company, you enjoy the people, um, and you can do your passion project on the side, I think that's also a perfectly fine path. Hmm. I like that. I completely agree with that. And the good news is for the people that are listening, you can find out what you're passionate about. You can find out where you like to spend your philanthropic time. And the multiplier effect of investing in the people in your life through that passion and through that philanthropy ultimately leads to an increase in sales and productivity at your existing job. You don't have to bring them together, but one can beget the other. And a classic example is Harvest Hosts, right? You've empowered people for a low cost to pursue their passion of seeing America in the great outdoors while also connecting with hosts and connecting with other travelers around things that they're passionate about, travel. And that's pretty neat. Yeah, I, I that was very eloquently put. I I think it's pretty neat as well, and I appreciate that. Um, so, what's next for Harvest Hosts? You're signing up. You got 1,157 hosts, including 343 golf courses. Uh, is it is it more users? Is it more locations? What's the next service offering? Yeah, uh, you know, I think. We, so focusing on expanding locations is one of our primary, I mean, that's like the biggest thing we focus on because without wonderful places for people to visit, um, we have no members, right? So we focus on expansion uh, first, and that's why last year we expanded into golf courses because I think golf courses are very pleasant places. Um, we're, we're always looking at new types of locations to, to you know, expand into. And then I think, and then of course, focusing on membership growth as well, so that we are providing these small businesses with uh, a lot of traffic um, and, and, and patrons um, is exciting. So, you know, it's interesting with this business, 
I actually, what I, one of the things I really enjoy about it is that I don't sit down and forecast out the next couple of years. I don't forecast revenue or profitability or growth, um, which is exactly what I did every single day at my last company was I sit down and be like, we need to grow 30% next year. Let's work backwards from that. What do we have to do to make that happen? Who do we need to hire? What kind of campaigns do we need to light up? Blah, blah, blah. And that was very like stressful because it was the tail wagging the dog, which is fine. I mean, that, and that's okay. Like we had raised $20 million. We were growing a big company. That's the sort of thing you do have to do. But this time around with Harvest Hosts, I'm doing it because I love it. It's a passion project. And um, I'm not allowing the tail to wag the dog. So I wake up every morning and I think, you know, how can we make this business better? But not necessarily, you know, in a year, how big are we going to be? And that's, that's a luxury that, that not every business person gets to have, but it's one that I certainly have and enjoy. That's a pretty good luxury. I especially love the model that, you know, for a, for a set price of $79 per year or $119 per year, if you, you know, bring the golf membership into it, you get access to an entire nation. You could travel the nation on 79 bucks a year and have a free place to stay every night with the opportunity to interact with locals and buy local products and use them in your cooking and all those kind of things. And that's a pretty neat business that you guys are up to. Yeah, I appreciate that, Chris. Well, well, I want to wrap it back up by bringing Phil back into the conversation. And, and my question to you is, um, you know, what, what is his reaction to what you're up to with this next chapter? And, and if he could come in and teach a class to the people in your life today or the, the thousands of hosts, wineries, and farmers across America – he could teach a class to that community today. What would you have him teach? Yeah, I'd have him teach a class on um, optimism and confidence. And I think he, he could give some really good anecdotes about how all, because he, he's a very successful storied person. He's built a lot of different companies from um, wind farms that went public and sold to, you know, video technology companies. Uh, today he's he, he's running a uh, oyster farm, and in California, and he's one of the first ones with permits to to farm oysters in a sustainable way, so that people can, you know, enjoy them without hurting the oceans. So he go, he like goes into all these radically different places because he's interested and thinks that there's good opportunities, and and he does it because he's an optimist. So I think um, that's what I would have him teach a class on. It's just like the importance of being an optimist. Um, in face of a ton of negativity that we are always surrounded by, like blocking it out and being optimistic. That'd be his course. And if he was uh, on the other end of this conversation with you today, what would you tell him? Yeah, I would just say thank Yeah. Thank you so much for always being so supportive. Um, I was just like this, uh, starry-eyed kid with grandiose ambitions that made no sense and instead of telling me that you went ahead and embraced it and that it made a big difference and I, I i attribute a lot of my current success and confidence to the fact that you were always so supportive so thank you 
I like it. Well, Joel, any, uh, any last words in closing for our listeners regarding some of the topics we talked about today or things we didn't cover yet? No, I think this is, this is a pretty cool interview. I, I gotta say it's, uh, it's, I've never done any, I've never done an interview like this where I actually had to sit and think through every question. So I apologize for my many rambling answers, but, um, (laughs) I really, I really appreciate the time. Uh, and it was very thought provoking and I, I'm going to, as soon as I get off this, I'm going to have to, uh, contact Phil and thank him. (laughs) I think I haven't, haven't been in touch for too long. Well, I certainly, uh, my thoughts were, were provoked as well. And, and I think that's the privilege on both ends is that our, our listeners get to hear, you know, you learning new things about yourself and, and me learning new things from you. And I think the things that stuck out the most is, um, I mean, A, you started off talking about your parents and how they supported your ideas, no matter how dumb they were. And I think that's a neat thing that, you know, you left childhood, you left the home and and your mentor, your boss was somewhat like your parents and that he was so optimistic that he supported your idea, no matter how dumb it was. Um, And that your ideas mattered, not your age. Um, And I think that's the coolest thing is that um, regardless of, how old we are, or what we've been through in life, all it takes is that one good idea from someone on the periphery um, that can change the course of you know what an expert has dedicated their life to. And that's where entrepreneurship lies. Um, and you seem to have done that you know in spades uh, across multiple enterprises. Um, so to all our listeners, you know what I say is, um, you know, you just heard a man who is, is dedicating his time, effort, and energy, and his money to making people happier, to getting them to go out and see the great outdoors. That if you spend 10 hours less per week on that one time-sucking activity that you have, you just might be able to go out and, and build something for yourself that you're proud of, it makes a positive impact on this world. Um, so go check out Harvest Hosts. Go check out Joel Holland on LinkedIn and everything that he's been up to. Follow this man because he has the future of our world, you know, uh, in, his, in his sights. Yes, you are never going to be Elon Musk. And you, you are... Uh, <laughs> You are never going to, you know, shoot the next rocket at the moon or Mars in Elon's case. Uh, But by golly, we can all adopt that same exact mentality. And if we do that together, we as a community can be the next Elon Musk and have that impact on the world. So, folks, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. um, Email in any questions, thoughts, or concerns you have with this episode, and we'll do our best to answer them through Joel's voice. Um, I hope you all are having a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore, and we'll see you out on the open road. See you next episode. <laughs>